I can remember uh, very well feeling how uh, hectic things were when uh, COVID started and um, you know, you always feel like life is a little bit crazy. You always feel like there's a lot of things happening and a lot of, you know, you're spinning a lot of plates. And I look back at early COVID Bryce. <laughs> and early COVID Bryce was like, you know, we're going to get through this. Things are going to settle down. Things are going to calm down. And in the course of the last year and a half, uh, things have just gotten remarkably worse. And sometimes, though, God is really kind and good to us in ways that we never would have expected. You know, sometimes we are so short-sighted about God's kindness and goodness as if it were God's job to smooth out the path for us. But that's not really how things work. And sometimes from the bottom of wherever we are, God tells us just the things that we need to hear, and he does it in the most unexpected of ways. So this morning, I am grateful for that wonderful mystery. What is the best way to get from point A to point B? Listen, all you smarty pants, you hardly even thought about it. It all depends on who you ask. That's the right answer. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that people can be extremely particular about the route you take to get somewhere? It can sometimes be a nerve-inducing experience to be the one behind the wheel, responsible for everyone's safety, just trying to get from point A to point B and dealing with the pressure of everyone in the car who thinks you should drive to point B their way. And if the person in the back keeps sighing like they are at every turn, then we may not all get there safely. <laughs> so everyone has an opinion, uh, but you also, it's not just so simple as saying this is how you are getting from point A to point B. There are other important questions such as, what is the objective of this trip? Are you wanting to take the scenic route? Because that will determine how you get from point A to point B. Are you trying to get there as fast as possible? Because again, that will determine how you get from point A to point B. And those two objectives, whether you are going the scenic route or you are going the fastest route, can be at odds with one another. You can't always have it both ways. Look, kid, a deer, right? And I've not even gotten to the different map applications that you can use to determine your course as you drive wherever you go. In our family, we are a ways family. Um, in large part because of it gives you these real-time traffic updates and tells you there's something in the road or tells you this, that, or the other. But Nisha and I often say that the problem with Waze is that Waze tries to be too clever, like in how it gets you somewhere. So it says, faster route, I'm rerouting you. Here's what you don't know about the faster route. You're going to have to go on back roads, dodge cows, and take 30 extra turns. 
And because of all of this effort, you will pull into your destination, point B, a minute sooner than if you had stayed on the freeway. I'm not sure that that one minute is all that important to me when it all comes down to it. The point is that there are a lot of different ways to get from point A to point B. And there are a lot of questions and things that you have to ask yourself. The objective of the journey, the time of day you leave, the amount of traffic on the road, the number of accidents, all those things determine how you feel about your journey by the time you get to point B. Now, I'm going to confess something to you this morning that I believe we are all guilty of. In our spiritual lives, we believe we're at point A. And we want to get to point B. Now, that seems fairly simple, but here's a pretty important question. What is point B? Now, this is not a trick question, even though it feels like one. We may have certain ideas of what point B should be. The objectives that we want God to accomplish in our lives. But the thing is, these objectives that we have set out for ourselves, these things that we believe make a successful journey to point B, whatever point B is, may not match up with the things that God actually wants for you. Uh, and some of those things, let's call it the scenic route, may include things like having a bigger house or retiring the way you want to or experiencing church growth in a way that you haven't before or seeing people come to Jesus in ways that you have never experienced. It can take on all different sorts of forms. So you see, our understanding of this journey is really convoluted in terms of what we expect God to do for us on the way to wherever we think we're going. So we have to recognize that a big part of living life with God is letting him determine what point B is and looking for the road signs that tell us the way we should go. Now, that's a pretty uncomfortable model. Isn't it? Where are you going? Not sure. How are you going to get there? But there will be signs that will take us along the way. Now, it's actually not as confusing as we want to make it, okay? This is how we think, which is what makes it so complicated, but I want to break it down for you into something more simple that I think God has planned for us. And these are some ideas that I'm still working on, which should give you a lot of confidence in what I'm about to say. Everybody has the same point A. Point A was the place where we heard the gospel and we gave our lives to Jesus. He became our Savior. We were washed in the blood of the Lamb, forgiven of our sins. And that is point A. That is the beginning of one's journey with Jesus. Now, granted, it can take a while to get to point A, but that's a discussion for another time. Now, here's the funny thing. Point B 
is the same for everyone who follows Jesus Christ. Point B, the end destination, the end result is that we are united with God away from this place, leaving the world behind, going home, and we are separated from him no longer. This is the cry of our hearts. Paul says that we feel naked and homeless as long as we're here and away from God. Get me out of this dump. I'm ready. But what about if point A is I've heard the gospel and know Jesus, and point B is I'm leaving earth to be reunited with my God. What happens between those two points? What about the route? Now, the route can vary gratefully. Amen? Amen. Just true. It's just true. The objective of the route between A and B, between the start of our life in Jesus and going home to God, is not to go fast or slow necessarily. The objective is also not necessarily that the route be scenic and then we get to see and experience and have all the things we want to along the way. So if it's not those things, then what is the point of the journey between A and B? There's only one. Did you know this? You're gonna. There's only one point, one purpose of you getting from point A to B. And Acts has reminded uh, us of this over and over again. The objective of your route between A and B is that the gospel goes out, that people hear about Jesus, and that all who hear would have a chance to start at their own point A and long for point B. And as they walk their road, they tell everyone about who they are now since they experience point A and where they're going, because God is good. Sure makes life seem less complicated than it actually is, doesn't it? And the problem here, again, is our own sense of expectation. I've shared the scripture with you, I don't know how many times, but I'm just going to keep doing it. Paul told Timothy, who was with him at parts of the book of Acts, Pray for everyone in all situations. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Paul is telling Timothy, this is the point of all of it. No matter what else we talk about, no matter what it looks like, no matter anything else, this is the point of all of it. This is the gospel that must go out into the world. And this has helped me to realize something that I actually don't think I am all that crazy about. But I'm working on it. To me, living in this place, what is most often important to me 
is the how of getting from A to B. I want it to go a certain way. I want my life to play a particular song. I want the end result to look like this. But as far as God is concerned, the how of me getting from A to B is nowhere near as important as what I'm doing while I'm getting from A to B. I don't know if any story in the book of Acts illustrates this as well as the next to last chapter, a chapter that I was going to skip. It's a story that I confess I did not understand the the purpose of as I was preparing for this week. But God had something he wanted me to learn through the story, and perhaps he wants you to learn it as well. So open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 27 today. But before we get there and join Paul on a journey at sea, I want to make the premise of everything that's happening really clear. God wanted Paul to go to Rome and to speak the gospel in Rome, be a witness for Jesus in that place. We saw this through the eight chapters we covered last week. From Acts 23, verse 11, in the middle of different things that were going on, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God wanted Paul to go to Rome. And God wanted Paul to go to Rome to testify there. So before we even get to chapter 27, God's purpose has been made clear. And Paul had done everything within his power to get himself to Rome. Through a series of several trials in front of different audiences, he ended up in front of the Roman governor. And as a Roman citizen, Paul insisted on going before Caesar. Festus, the Roman governor, even brought in a Jewish expert in King Agrippa to listen to everything that's going on, and they can't find anything wrong with him. And they come to this conclusion that we could just let this guy go if he hadn't insisted on going to see Caesar, but now, because he's a Roman citizen who wants to see Caesar, he has to go to Rome, which is what God wants and is what Paul wants. Paul was going to Rome, and Rome was how he was actually going to get there. Now, if we were writing this story, some of you know what happens in chapter 27 and the first part of chapter 28. How would we write the story of Paul's journey to Rome? So we have a couple of options here. Number one, we would probably be tempted to make it a footnote. And then this amount of time later, Paul got to Rome. But that is not really very creative of us. So that's just being lazy. All right? And I don't think that you're lazy people, except for maybe you. So if it weren't to be just making a footnote, how would we write about Paul's journey to Rome? Well, it would probably be mostly uneventful, but this is the important part to help us understand. 
why would the journey to Rome for Paul be mostly uneventful? Because we understand these dynamics in a particular way. God wants him to get from where? Point A to point B. God's already set it. Paul's already set it up. And therefore, because this is God-ordained and Paul set up, the journey's going to be like he'll encounter some people along the way. There will be an interesting uh, side note about the bread of this local port. And there we go. He's in Rome. Because the point is what? To get to Rome. So why is it then that there are 58 verses dedicated to Paul getting to Rome and 16 dedicated to what he does in Rome? Why? It makes me think I've got this all wrong. If Luke believed that he had to write 58 verses about what happens along the way, and there are only 16 dedicated to what is supposed to be the end-all, be-all of this experience, then I'm misreading something. Or, maybe to put it more accurately, my expectation of how the story should go is off. It's just not accurate. So how should we describe Paul's actual journey to Rome? Um, pure chaos seems pretty accurate. It does. It seems like the best way. Uh, completely out of control would be another way. Except, again, that's not really the truth. Let's take a look at some of the things that are happening. And we're not going to read through every uh, part of this. I'm going to summarize some things for you. I've had some difficult trips in my lifetime. Um, details didn't work out. There was bad weather. I distinctly remember uh, as Nish and I were traveling to our honeymoon in Florida, or back. Was it back home? It was back home. Uh, Nisha, who didn't love to fly, we're getting on the plane, and the stewardess, the flight attendant says, um, this is going to be a really fun flight because you'll get to see lightning hit the plane. <laughs> Which thrilled Nisha to no end. But none of what I've ever experienced compares to Paul's journey to Rome. Again, the place God wanted him to go. So Paul set sail for Rome in chapter 27 under the care of a centurion named Julius. The vessel, the ship they were in, was most likely a coasting ship which would travel close into shore and put in at the various ports along the way. There are some speculations that maybe it carried grain from one part of the area to another. Since it was unlikely a vessel bound for Rome... Uh, would be found along the Palestinian coast, Julius probably took this first ship with the intention of transferring later to a different ship, which is, in fact, what happens. The story is told in a really interesting way that stands out from a lot of the rest of the narrative of the book of Acts. It's a first-person telling, uh, and it is full of nautical terms and uh, winds and strategies even, if you will, to keep a boat in the water. 
The account has much in common with a lot of H and C narratives and has provoked a lively discussion among scholars. The route followed, the landmarks passed, and the times lapsed uh, are all given with considerable detail, and there's heavy use of this technical seafaring uh, terminology. Now, what's really interesting, this is just for free, I'm not charging you for this one, uh, but back in the 1870s, there was a scholar, uh, well, actually, he was a seafarer, he was a sailor, who took interest in this story, and so went to all the places and tried all the things and experienced the winds and tried to hit things at the same, and went back as a sailor to see what, if the story holds up, and it, it does, the story holds up. Um, and then what he wrote about all this ended up being a most interesting thing. Uh, things went well at first, but they increasingly got more difficult. And what is kind of weird is that Julius, the centurion who's running this show, he has a great deal of respect for Paul. So when they go to port, for example, if there are Christians in the area, Julius lets Paul connect with them and uh, have a, a meeting or, or do something before they take off to the next, to the next port. They switched to an Alexandrian ship, which was actually going to Rome, and they head out, but the wind did not agree with their journey, and they ended up at a harbor in a place called Fair Havens. And there was some sort of discussion in Fair Havens about what they should do and whether they should continue going forward or whether they should not. And Paul, who keep in mind is a prisoner of Rome, he still is because he hasn't cleared trial yet, was invited to come talk with Julius, the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, about what they should do. From Acts 27, verses 9 through 12, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So calculated by the phases of the moon, the Day of Atonement fell at various times of the year, but always, or I'm sorry, year to year, but always uh, in late September or early October. For ancient travel on the Mediterranean, mid-September to early November was considered a dangerous time for traveling the open sea. After early November, such travel ceased altogether and was generally not resumed until the beginning of February at the earliest. So Paul advised them, let's not sail right now. Um, like, take, take a look out there. You see any other boats? Let's be like them. But Julius decided not to listen to him, and they set sail. So picking it up in verse 13 of Acts 27. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So understand, they are now being blown wherever the wind 
is taking them, and they are out of control. As we pass to the lee, again, nautical terms, as we pass to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed, this is interesting, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Okay, most of you who know me know that I'm terrified of the open sea, right? Open water scares me. Anything could be below you. We've covered this ground before. Things are getting so bad, they're running ropes under the boat to try to tie it together. I don't know a lot about ships and being on the open sea, but this seems like a bad thing to me. I mean, you see cars on the road all the time with duct tape, but this is on the open water, my friends, that this is happening. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they lowered the anchor in order to try to slow down uh, where they were going. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Okay. Paul's just supposed to get to Rome, and he is now adrift at sea with a boat that's tied together which they have jettisoned all of the cargo and now most of the equipment. And Paul, as I kind of believe in my head only Paul could do, stands up and in an I told you so voice says, I told you we shouldn't have done this. But this is a turning point in the story, you see, because what Paul does do is speak God into a situation where God was not previously. And he tells them, look, it looks as bad to me as it does to you, but have courage, take heart, because the God I serve told me that we are going to lose our ship, but no one on board will be lost. So let's keep going <laughs> And let's figure out what's going to happen. Paul's presence on the ship ended up ensuring the lives of everyone on the ship. And it was God that was doing this. Just keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. Picking up in verse 27. On the 14th night in the storm, 
We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took surroundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Okay, if there is anyone that most represents us in this story, we are the sailors. Now, why are we the sailors? We have an expectation of how this journey should go. And we are going to use everything we have, all of our sailorness. We're going to drop anchors. We're going to take soundings. We're going to do all of these things because it is our job to control where this boat is going. And here's how dumb we are about it. We haven't controlled the boat for weeks. We have been blown wherever the wind wants us to go. But what do we still want? To take control. To guide this thing that is unguidable. And Paul, who has already spoken God into this situation, speaks into the situation again, and he warned them that if they abandoned this ship, that there would be loss of lives. So Julius and the captain and these other people, they had to decide whether they would trust God and Paul and Paul's God, I should say, or whether they would listen to everything that they know about how this should go. So God now becomes a character in this story of a bunch of non-Christians and one Paul journeying through a storm and close to losing their lives. And to a degree, what ends up happening is Paul becomes ship chaplain. He encouraged people when they were without hope. He encouraged people to eat and to take care of themselves. He told them, God will deliver us. God will deliver us. And this was no small deal because there were 276 people on board. Not just Paul and Julius and the Juliusettes, right? There's a bunch of people. And it's chaotic and it's out of control. Except, you know, the funny thing is that it isn't. Because God, you see, wants Paul to get to Rome. God wants Paul to get to Rome. And who, after all, is writing this crazy story? Who's writing this story? God is. Not the sailors, not Paul, not anyone else. So what is Paul's job? While he's on the way to the place that God wants him to go, which is nothing like he thought it was going to be, what is his job? to introduce people to a God who saves lives. Who might have brought the wind, but can stop the wind as well. 
this God who calls them to believe in something more and bigger than themselves. So picking it up in verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. There are no breaks on this thing. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. So I want you to understand what they basically did here was cut all control and put a brick on the gas pedal, hoping to hit land. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow, the, bow, the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached land safely. And who was proven true? They ended up on this island called uh, Malta. They built a fire. This is the famous story from a Bible school where Paul gets bitten by a viper and shakes it off and throws it into the fire, and he's completely fine. They ended up at the home of a man named Publius, the chief official of the island. And so Paul gets there. Now he's on Malta in the, ha- in the house of Publius. And guess what? Just Publius has a dad who's terribly sick. And so Paul goes in and visits with his dad and prays over him and heals his father in the name of Jesus. Then the island starts bringing all of their sick to come and see Paul and to be introduced to the God who can heal them from this life. They stayed there for three months, and guess what? Paul made it to Rome. What are we to make of this story? Paul had a starting point and a destination. He was in Caesarea. He needed to get to Rome. But the journey that he ended up on was a completely different one than that. And I think it's important for us to note here that even though Paul was specifically on this plan, this design, this work of God, It doesn't mean that everything then was easy for him or anyone else, to be honest. In fact, you could argue that before Paul met Jesus, he was a person who had his own home, great influence and power, the face of the Jewish people reclaiming their own faith. And what happens to him when he comes to know Jesus? He starts a different journey altogether. Without a home. Where he travels from place to place 
meets people from all over the world, gets beaten, arrested, and arrested, and beaten, and beaten, and arrested. And, and this is Paul that we're talking about here. It's not you or me. This is the person who was chosen to take the gospel out to the world. Which makes me then ask myself, well, if Paul's life was like this, and if this journey, which we think should have been so easy, was so difficult, then what does Paul know that I don't? I've been at this a long time, right? What does he know that I don't? Or rather, what does he remember that I forget? And I think what it is, is this, and we've already said it once, but let's say it again. This is not Paul's story. It's God's story. And it's God's story even if the story has chapters we don't want in the book. It's still God's story. Therefore, God is present in all things, and he is God of all things, even the storm. And if we can remember that the point of the journey is not to get from A to B, but to tell people about Jesus along the way, then the storms become inconsequential. It doesn't mean they didn't happen to us. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we don't learn something from the storms. But if we believe that God is writing this story, then we can walk into any storm and say, do you know about the God who can deliver us from this thing? Do you know about Jesus who has already delivered you from the biggest storm there is? The thing that we have to somehow grasp and wrap our minds around as we come to the end of this book of Acts is that no matter what the circumstances, the gospel must go out. That is the reason you are here. The gospel must go out. But we're at sea and we're dying. The gospel must go out. We've shipwrecked on an island. Then heal the whole stinking island in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is not that in our lives from point A where we came to know Jesus and point B where we go home. The point is not that we have some sort of great spiritual epiphany, some great success, some great story that people will tell about us for the rest of our lives. The point of all of it is that our life started when we heard the gospel and Jesus became our Savior. And it will end when we go home. But between here and there, a million things are going to happen. But in all of them, people will hear about Jesus. in all of them. Pe 
people will be told the story of the God they don't even know. Who loves them. And they're going to look at us and they're going to say, you are crazy. Don't you see the storm? Yeah, I do. And God is present in the storm. And God will be present when it's sunny again. And he will still be saving me. And he will still be saving you. Amen? So let's be convinced and passionate about the fact that that is something worth telling people. That is something worth speaking into every place, into every heart, into every difficulty, into every triumph, into every challenge, into every strong wind and deep sea. God is and he loves us.